Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Let us give thanks to the caterer by applauding them. Thank you very much for a wonderful lunch. Um, like I said, there will be another lecture by Gershom Baskin tonight at the university from 7 o'clock, room PE250. Where can they park, Knud? It's all free park parking at the university. So Yeah, our speaker will be not just repeating his talk this evening at the university, so you wouldn't be going to hear the same thing. So we look forward to seeing some of you there. Thank you. Thank you, Trevor. Now, uh, this is a part you're going to take part. Question. It's a question period. Uh, I would like to avoid long winded speech. Mention your name and uh, go right into the question, please. And uh, if there are many people lining up, which is already there, uh, please restrict your question to one at a time. And if you have a two or three questions, you come around when there's Come around and uh, line up at the end of the line and ask second question. So please ask one question at a time. Thank you. And I'm question. Ready. I'm ready. Good afternoon. Uh, thank you so much for being here. I have a, oh, my name is Rena Was. I've got a question, but I've also got um, an announcement that I've been allowed to make. Uh, the City of Lethbridge has an online survey, and it's a timely one. Uh, there, the uh, land use bylaws are being updated to um, address the digital billboards that are insidiously creeping up into our community and uh, increasing, you know, safety issues and light pollution and like that. So I urge all of you to take a couple of minutes, go on the City of Lethbridge website, and fill out the survey. Uh, thank you. Um, you're the first person I have heard that has succinctly encapsulated what is going on in that part of the world, and I thank you for that. Uh, I've been fascinated with this. Um, you said the, the problem has started about 100 years ago. Well, if I think back, really, the, the Jews and the Arabs have been at war with each other since biblical times, and I'm, you know, I'm fascinated with that. Like, there's so much hatred, and it's been, it's, it's, there's no, it seems to be no resolve to it. What is the reason for it, and why they're supposed to be so religious, so devout, that these religious leaders cannot come together and once and for all um, create the peace that they say they want? Thank you. Oh, it's, a, it's a really good question. It's a tough question because I, I don't really have explanations that give um, answers to the 
biblical hatred that developed um, between the two mothers of the two children of Abraham, um, Hagar and her son Ismael, Ishmael, the firstborn to Abraham and Isaac and Sarah, and, and maybe um, just that nature of a relationship of a, of a man with two wives and two children um, fighting over birthrights um, is where it begins and, and starts from. Um, this conflict is a mesh of a, a conflict over real estate, as we talked about, over land, over control, over domination, over identity, over religion, um, the Jewish religion and the Muslim, uh, the Islamic religion, although it would be a mistake to call this a conflict over religion. It's not a war between Judaism and Islam. Um, it is a national conflict. There are religious elements to it because we're dealing with a piece of territory that has a history of being called a holy land and having holy places within it. And the holy places are claimed by more than one religion, and that becomes a flashpoint in the conflict as well. So it's a combination, but it remains mostly a territorial dispute between national groups. That's what it's mainly about, with all these over overtones and undertones. Hi, my name is Henning Mundell, and my, my question actually will relate to a part of that, just with a little preamble. Uh, you're talking about the current conflict sort of going back about 100 years. Well, half of that time ago, uh, I was a graduate student, in other words, half a century ago, I was a graduate student in uh, UC Davis, and uh, I arranged a party where I had the Egyptian fellow and an uh, Israeli-Jewish uh, gal sitting next to each other, and photo was taken, and he was very determined that that photo not get out anywhere. She wasn't worried, but he was at that time. This was before any kind of Camp David and so on. Um, and, uh, but, okay, so then four years later, I was in Israel, and I distinctly remember traveling through with my uh, Israeli friends through Arab villages versus Jewish villages. My question now in relation to what you're saying is, in the planned Israel-Palestine states, would that imply then the relocating of the Arabs from those Arab villages throughout Israel? And what about the Christian Arabs that aren't Islamic? So, no. Um, the answer is no. We're not talking about moving any citizen of the state of Israel out of the state of Israel. 1.2 million uh, citizens of the state of Israel are Palestinian Arabs. Um, they were born in the state of Israel, or the state of Israel was born in the territory where they were living, and they remain um, citizens of Israel, equal under the law. 65 years later since the birth of the state of Israel, there are still problems of discrimination, and there's still conflict because the wider conflict exists between Israel and the Arab states and the Palestinians. Um, so this is an issue that needs to be dealt with at the level of democracy, citizen to citizen, building equality within a state. But no one is suggesting that those uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel move to the Palestinian state. They can if they want to. They would probably be able to hold dual citizenship. But Israel recognizes them as citizens of the state of Israel, and they are 21% um, of the state of Israel. Um, and they will remain. Uh, 
the, the people who will most likely have to move are some of the settlers who are living in um, what will become the Palestinian state. Um, and there, too, those settlers, even though they're living there in breach of international law, should be granted a right, if they so choose, to live within the state of Palestine as citizens of Palestine under Palestinian sovereignty and law, not in separate communities and not as armed militia, but as law-abiding citizens in the state of Israel. There's no, in the state of Palestine, there's no reason why there should not be a Jewish minority in a Palestinian state. Now, with regard to the Christian um, Palestinians, in the territories occupied by Israel after 67, the West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem, the Christian uh, population has dwindled. They were once 12, 13, 14% of all the Palestinians. Today, they number about 2%. Um, they live primarily in the three Christian cities, uh, Bethlehem, Beit Sahor, and Beit Jala. There's one or two other Christian cities within the West Bank. But the only place where they remain a majority is only in the city of Beit Sahor, not even in Bethlehem. Bethlehem does not have a Christian majority anymore. It has a Muslim majority. Many of the Christian Palestinians left because they were able to. During periods of fighting, during periods of warfare, they had relations and connections to their churches abroad. Um, I don't know if you know this, but there are about half a million Palestinians who live in Chile. There are about 200,000 Palestinians who live in Costa Rica. And they started moving there in the 1950s and became very successful business people there. And they're almost all Christians. Uh, so the Christian population is um, removed. Of the 1.2 million Palestinian citizens of Israel, about 10% of them are Christians and live mostly in Nazareth and in the towns and villages around Nazareth, another Christian holy city. Yeah. Avatanis, thank you for your enlightenment on your perspective of the Middle East, mainly Palestine. Uh, if the Palestinians would have agreed with the participation from the UN resolution, would they have achieved statehood? If they had accepted the UN resolution in 1947 and did not go to war against Israel with their brothers and sisters from the Arab countries, they would have achieved statehood and they would have had a state on roughly 50% of the land. Already from 1948, when Israel was declared, the Palestinian state would have been declared, and they presumably would have been living in peace all these years. But they rejected it then. They only came to accept Israel um, many years later. Hi. Um, I, and I'm sorry, I'm going to have to contradict um, some of the things you're saying right Please. now. Um, oh, it's sorry, my name is Jill Scraper. Um, I guess I, I'd like to just start with a sh short preamble to my, my um, question. Uh, in 1917, I believe it was, the Balfour Declaration mm -hmm. gave uh, the Jews uh, the right to develop a state of Israel, and they were given Palestine. But to, um, to keep peace... They gave up 78% of that territory to create Jordan for the Palestinians. But the people who were in what Israel was were also allowed to stay in their homes. Now, um, a lot is talked about with the Jewish or uh, the Palestinian refugees. 
But I think what a lot of people don't understand is up to 980,000 Jews were at that same time um, evicted from land that some of them had lived in for 2,000 years. And nothing is saying, said about the land and the business and the money and the community Chris, that they lost. Please. Yes. Um, so, I, okay, I'll get to the question. I got, I got um, the question. You want me to address those contradictions that you say I made? Um, actually, you can go ahead and do that. I'll okay. go to the back of the line, and I've got another question. Okay. Well, I've got a few. Go I'll ahead. just say that the Balfour Declaration was issued by Lord Balfour, who was the foreign minister of, of Great Britain in 1917. Um, the Brits got the mandate over Palestine from the League of Nations in 1920, or 21, if I'm not mistaken. And what Lord Balfour had done was tell the Jewish leaders that the British government would view with favor the creation of a Jewish homeland in Palestine. They, of course, had no legal right or authority to do anything about it. It was a statement of principles. They also wrote in the Balfour Declaration that in creating a Jewish homeland, they never talked about a state, they talked about a homeland for the Jews in Palestine, that the rights of the other communities living in Palestine would have to be respected. So first of all, they never talked about sovereignty or statehood. They did talk about viewing with favor the creation of a Jewish homeland there. They didn't have any legal authority, which was granted by the League of Nations only later. Um, the main aim of the British Declaration was to encourage the Jews in Europe, particularly in those countries within the Axis powers fighting against Britain, to um, not be loyal to the Germans and the Turks while they were fighting World War I. At the same time, the same time, the British issued the McMahon letters to the Arabs in which they made contradicting promises to the Arabs so that they would fight against the Turks in World War I. So the British were great about giving out promises for something that they had no authority to do in order to gain loyalty. So um, while the Balfour Declaration was an important declaration in recognizing the Zionist movement's goals of ultimately creating a state, it does not have any real legal authority. The creation of the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, which was done um, around the same time, um, within the same period that the Brits and the French were dividing up the Middle East and creating all kinds of artificial states, had nothing to do with the palace, giving the Palestinians the rights. The historical reality is that in exchange for the support of the Arabs in the Arabian Peninsula, to the Brits in World War I, the Brits promised the Hashemite family that they would get kingdoms in the Middle East. So they were granted what became Transjordan, they were granted Iraq, they were granted Syria. The brothers or the sons of Sharif Hussein of Mecca each were given a kingdom of their own. Again, something that the Brits didn't really have any right to do. Um, but, and, and that's what you're calling cutting off Palestine from the Palestinian people. Much of Jordan, the land that was given to Transjordan, were Bedouin tribes. They weren't Palestinians. And the Hashemites themselves were from the Arabian Peninsula, and they were kicked out of Arabia by the Saud family, who created Saudi Arabia. So these were nomads who were kicked out of their own land and given another piece of land by the Brits. So this is a big mishmash, and as we see, the, the Arab um, uh, revolts that have taken place over the last years, we see some of these um, uh, states 
that were artificially drawn by imperialist powers uh, being dismantled by the real demographics that exist on the ground. And, and that's what's happening in parts of the Middle East today, whether we look at this in Syria or, or in Lebanon or in Iraq. Um, this is part of the imperialist powers creating artificial states where they didn't really exist before. Um, thank you, Gershon, for a really concise, uh, encompassing um, uh, history lesson. Um, my, my name is Terry Shillington, I was just going to say. Thank you. Um, I'd like to move the discussion to the present context. Uh, I think over the years, Egypt has had a role to play in some of these conversations, and so have the other neighboring lands, and now Syria is obviously preoccupied, and I think Egypt is too. Do you see in the in the present context and in the living out of uh, uh, any such agreement, do you see the Arab lands playing a significant role? And if so, what kind of a role? Yeah, you're very correct in saying that the Egyptians continue to play a role, even with the, um, the, the realities of um, regime change in Egypt that have happened several times over the last years, hopefully now moving towards stability. The Egyptians just yesterday were involved in negotiating a new ceasefire arrangement between the Palestinian Islamic Jihad that was shooting those rockets into Israel from Gaza and Israel. And apparently the Egyptian general intelligence has managed to do that. But the most significant thing about your question is that in 2002, the League of Arab States, representing 22 Arab countries, issued a document which is called the Arab Peace Initiative. It originally started out as the Saudi Initiative. It was adopted by the League of Arab States. It was furthermore adopted by the Conference of Islamic States, 56 Islamic countries, which basically said the following. Um, it talked about if Israel returned the territories it occupied in 1967, um, then when it was written was referring both to the Palestinian territories and the Golan Heights of Syria, um, which is now off the discussion table because of what's happening in Syria. But basically what they said, if the Israelis make peace with the Palestinians, enable them to have a state, resolve the core issues, Jerusalem have an agreed solution to the refugee issue, that all the Arab nations would be willing to establish peace and normal relations with Israel. They wrote the document in Arabic, and they used a very important word in Arabic, well, a code word in Arabic political culture, um, which is normal relations, normalization. Throughout the past 65 years, there's been a campaign, the Arab boycott, against normalization with Israel. And in this document to the Arab Peace Initiative from 2002, they talk about normal relations with Israel, which is, is, which is a taboo in Arab political culture. So they were saying, we're willing to break our taboo, recognize Israel, and have peace with Israel. That document, unfortunately, was issued on the very same day that Israel experienced one of the worst terrorist attacks that ever took place. It was on the eve of the Passover um, feast, and it was a bomb in a hotel in Netanya, which basically wiped out a whole family. 29 people were killed from the same family. Um, and it was the terrorist attack that led to the Israeli um, defensive shield operation in which Israel went back in and conquered the Palestinian territories after the Al-Aqsa, the Second Intifada, emerged. So this document was ignored in Israel at the time because we were facing daily terrorism. But it's been ratified six times since it was issued in 2002, and it still remains on the table. It was ratified just a few months ago by the Arab League summit in Riyadh in Saudi Arabia. And not only that, the Arab League foreign ministers um, added 
the Palestinian acceptance of territorial swaps to the formula. So it's not only a return to the 1967 borders, they accepted the territorial swaps. So there is, in effect, and, and this document was produced mainly with the participation of Jordan and Egypt, who have peace with Israel, in order to entice the Israeli government and the Israeli people to make peace with the Palestinians. One last comment on this. I don't know if anyone heard Prime Minister Netanyahu last week when he spoke at the APAC conference. APAC is the American-Israel Public Action Committee. It's called the, the Pro-Israel Lobby in Jerusalem, a very powerful organization. They had an audience of 14,000 people there, and Prime Minister Netanyahu spoke. And when he spoke in, the, in his speech, uh, uh, the section that he devoted to peace with the Palestinians, he spoke specifically about the economic benefits that Israel would gain by making peace with the Palestinians, and he spoke mostly about the profits that Israel could gain um, by uh, having trade and joint ventures and commerce with the Arab states that would result from peace with the Palestinians. So I think this, this is an accepted principle today that opening the door to peace with the Palestinians opens the door to peace with about 20 other Arab countries. Uh, my name is Richie Whitehead. I'd like you to speak, if you could, to the conflict or the uh, disagreement between Hamas and the PLO, because it seems like until they uh, get some common ground, it's going to be difficult to have a two-country sure. solution. Right. Um, I, I can say confidently um, that... Um, I am the Israeli citizen who has spent more hours in conversation with Hamas people than any other Israeli in the world. Um, uh, more, more than, well over a thousand phone calls and, and at least two visits to Hamas headquarters in Gaza and face-to-face -face meetings with other Hamas people in other parts of the world um, that led to my involvement in the negotiations for the freeing of the Israeli soldier, Gilad Shalit, who had been abducted and held in Hamas captivity for five years and four months, for which Israel released 1,027 Palestinian prisoners in exchange for one Israeli soldier. Um, so my, my relationship with Hamas is quite um, deep. Um, nonetheless, uh, Israel has one negotiating partner on the Palestinian side, and that's Mahmoud Abbas, the president of the Palestinian Authority and the head of the PLO. Hamas is not a partner for peace. Um, to the best of my knowledge, there is no one who I would call a moderate member of Hamas. There are pragmatic members of Hamas. There are people who recognize that they can't destroy Israel today and therefore they need to have a modus vivendi with Israel. And they're willing to talk through third parties with Israel about all different kinds of things like commerce and water and electricity and other things that they, they need to live, but they're not willing to make peace with Israel or recognize Israel. Hamas was established um, in, in the beginning of the first intifada in, in the end of 1987, but it grew out of the Muslim Brotherhood, which started working in Gaza in the 1950s and 1960s. In the 1970s, the Israeli military authorities actually licensed organizations that were run by what were called Islamic associations. These Islamic associations set up schools and clinics and kindergartens and, and craft centers for women and all kinds of social affairs and seemed to be non-political in terms of not being engaged in the conflict and they were not a military operation. And this is at a time when Israel's number one enemy was the PLO. 
as an alternative to the PLO, the Israelis licensed these Islamic associations who secretly began to create a military arm and turn themselves into Hamas at the beginning of the first Intifada. And they rejected the platform of the PLO that was willing to make peace with Israel on the basis of the two-state solution, and that remains the case. In 2006, in elections that were held in, in the Palestinian territories, Hamas won those elections. But it would be a mistake to think that they won a majority of support to the Palestinian people. In fact, they only got a third of the votes but they won a majority of the parliament because of the structure of the elections that they have. This is an optical illusion. So they won a majority, and then a year later, they committed a coup d'etat in which they kicked out the PLO forces loyal to President Abbas and violently took over the Gaza Strip, creating two separate regimes of Palestine, one ruled by Hamas in Gaza and one ruled by the PLO in the West Bank. And since that time, they've been engaged in reconciliation talks. But there is no common ground for reconciliation between these two movements because they want two entirely different things. The PLO is seeking to make peace with Israel and establish an independent state next to Israel. And Hamas seeks to destroy Israel and to create a Palestinian state in place of Israel. So these things don't go together. Hamas is a terrorist organization, recognized as a terrorist organization by the overwhelming majority of the international community, and there's no room for reconciliation between them. What we do have is a reality on the ground where Hamas today enjoys no more than 10, 12% support even in Gaza. They are not only politically bankrupt, they are financially bankrupt. They ran a tunnel enterprise underneath the Sinai Desert um, in which they smuggled in goods and weapons. And after the fall of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt and the rise of terrorism in the Sinai against the Egyptian government, the Egyptian military in Gaza, in the Sinai, has shut down more than 1,000 tunnels. Hamas has lost an estimated $140 million a month in income that was derived from the tunnel enterprise. They cannot pay their bills. They're finished politically, they're finished economically in my estimation. What would do them away forever as a political force in Palestine was if Mahmoud Abbas was able to present a peace treaty with Israel that said that Gaza will be part of the Palestinian state because there's no territorial argument between Israel and Gaza. Israel left Gaza. It has no territorial claims on Gaza, but the implementation of the agreement in Gaza will only happen when the regime that controls Gaza accepts the terms of the agreement. And if that were to happen, I believe very strongly, as do many of my colleagues, that in a very short period of time, the 1.7 million people living in Gaza would overthrow the Hamas regime. That's the outlook. And if they don't, then the status quo remains where the Palestinian state is established first in the West Bank, and Gaza remains in the status quo situation as an isolated territory living in poverty. Hello. Uh, there are three people uh, standing behind the microphone, and uh, this is a fascinating discussion. We can go on until tomorrow morning, but uh, some of us have to go to work, etc. So 
Gary is the last person to ask questions. Would that be okay? Thank you very much. Mr. Chair, my name is Joseph Natuk, and it's a question that uh, you may not want to answer. Uh, I want very to answer fascinating, very fascinating presentation, which I, you know, I'm still don't completely understand, or hardly understand. Anyway, my question is, can you relate this to uh, the situation in Ukraine and Russia? Kind of a similar situation. It, just say yes or no. If you don't want to address it, that's up to you. But I, I, I see some similarities there. Thank you. I think there are some similarities, um, one, because you have a conflict situation, and conflict situations always have similarities. Um, and you have a, a, a defined population group in the Crimea that apparently, um, from what we understand, doesn't want to be part of the Ukraine, would rather be part of Russia. Um, if it were a simple localized conflict, a, a simple referendum in Crimea would answer the, the, the conflict, and the people there would choose which country they want to be associated with. Unfortunately, um, it, it has a much bigger um, consequence in global politics, mainly between the United States and Russia. Um, and if Russia and the United States were not part of the quotient, it would be an easy thing to resolve. Um, but because it has a much bigger um, impact on global politics today, I'm afraid it's not going to be so simple to resolve. Um, it should be. But we will see how this play out as well. I, I really believe that President Obama, in his heart of hearts, uh, believes very deeply in um, very deeply in diplomatic solutions to global problems. He has demonstrated that over and over again in parts of the world, particularly in Israel, parts of the Arab world, other parts of the world. That's that's perceived as being weakness. Um, I, I'm not sure. Um, in fact, I'm pretty sure that Obama does not perceive that as American weakness. Um, certainly the Republican Party does. Um, but the Republican Party will be against anything that Obama does anyway. So, um, but but the, the biggest similarity that I see is that all these localized complex, the conflicts have global impacts. And if you want to resolve the local conflicts, you have to look at the global impacts and see how you mitigate the, the risks and the dangers for the peace of the world and only for this only small piece of land. Yes. I guess just back to the question that I was leading up to. Um, international law states that uh, when a country obtains land because they were trying to defend themselves, that land then goes to that country. And so... Um, no such international law. Quite the opposite. And not only that, the State of Israel accepted UN Resolution 242 in June of 1967, which says explicitly the non-admissibility of territory conquered in war. That's what Resolution 242 Security Council Resolution says that was accepted by the State of Israel. Okay, so um, I guess my question is, my understanding was the West Bank was never designated to the Palestinians or to the State of Israel, that it was kind of in limbo. And the parts of the West Bank that the Jewish people are most concerned about are basically areas that are launching pads where if they were attacked by the Palestinians, like they have been in Gaza, they could literally reach any single part of um, Israel uh, that they wanted to. And Abbas has stated um, on many occasions that should that become Palestinian, 
that the Jews would be evicted. Um, he's, now, the, the problem with buses, he says one thing in English, and you have got to have a, a, somebody who speaks the language to interpret what he's saying in Palestine. So, anyways, I'll leave you to discuss that. Okay. Um, you know, there's a mix of I historical in, in incorrect um, information and current political realities that I want to address at the same time. Um, one is that it is true, as I stated earlier, that the West Bank was illegally annexed by Jordan and its annexation was not recognized by international law. Nonetheless, that territory had been designated as part of the territory that would be the Palestinian state in the original UN resolution. It's also been agreed by the international community that the Palestinian state would be established in that territory and not only that, there are 133 countries in the world today that recognize, today, recognize the existence of the state of Palestine within the territories occupied by Israel in 1967. 133 countries of the world recognize the state of Israel. Um, it was granted overwhelming recognition of statehood by the United Nations last September, and they were granted observer status. Not members of the United Nations, but I'll remind you that the that, that bizarre, poor little country called Switzerland became a member of the United Nations only in 1972. Before that, they were observer, observer state. They were a non-member observer state of the United Nations. So Palestine today exists, according to international law, within the boundaries of the territories occupied by Israel in 1967 as a non-member state observer of the United Nations. So there's no question about the legality of the existence. Not only that, it is universally accepted that Israel has no territorial legal rights to claim that territory as its own. It has historic rights that, from our tradition, is called Judea and Samaria. From our tradition, the Jewish tradition, when we read the Old Testament, which we do every day as part of our prayers, we tell the story of our people that takes place in the hilltops and the valleys of Judea and Samaria, not the beaches of Tel Aviv. That is for us our heritage, our land, where of the prophets. It's part of our story. But nonetheless, if we want to live in peace, we can't have it all. But we want to be able to visit there. There are holy places there that we want to have access to. That has to be part of the deal that this is an open land that people can move to freely. Now, Mahmoud Abbas speaks almost exclusively in Arabic. His English is not that good. I know him personally. I meet with him personally. I attended a meeting that he held three weeks ago in Ramallah, to which he invited 10 busloads of Israeli university students. 300 Israeli university students sat in the audience and listened to him for an hour and a half as he spoke in Arabic. I, by the way, I didn't use the translation that was provided because I understand Arabic. And I listened to him and I watched his body language. And he spoke peace, undeniably spoke peace. And he has agreed, not only in public, but more importantly, in negotiations, where it really counts, that the state of Palestine will be a demilitarized state. He's not a fool. He knows that investing limited Palestinian resources in building an army 
is the stupidest thing that Palestinians could do. Who exactly are they going to fight against with their army? The mighty state of Israel? They would only be wasting their resources by trying to have an air force and tanks and artillery. They don't want to waste their valuable, precious few resources on doing that. They want to invest in education, in building institutions, in building an economy, in building houses. Now, it's true if they shot rockets at Israel from anywhere in the West Bank, they could hit any target in the West Bank. But I got news from you. The Iranians, who are a thousand kilometers away, can hit any target in Israel with rockets. That's the thing about rocket technology, that borders are irrelevant today. Israel's strategic defense is not built on territory anymore. It will be built ultimately on the interest of countries to keep peace with Israel because they have so much more to gain from peace with Israel than anything else. And that's for the Palestinians as well. If they want to live in freedom and dignity, they want to have the same things that everyone in this room enjoys, that we all want, they have to make peace with Israel. And that peace agreement, because we've learned the lessons in the past, has to be built in a way that we're not taking unnecessary risks when we withdraw from territory, we have to ensure that the other side is implementing what they say they're going to do, just as Israel has to implement what it says it's going to do. And therefore, we're going to need third parties, probably American-led, to verify, monitor, and verify the implementation of agreements before we take unnecessary risks. Before we withdraw from territory, we're going to have to know that the Palestinians are seriously fighting against terrorism, that they won't have a rocket industry developing in the West Bank that will shoot rockets at us from their territory. By the way, Hamas people were shooting rockets at Israel while Israel was sitting in Gaza. The rockets began in 2002. Israel left Gaza in 2005. Even when Israel was sitting there with the full force of the military, the Israeli military, they were shooting rockets at us. So physical presence in a territory isn't a recipe for stopping people from killing you. Sometimes it's even the reason why they're killing you. So... I think we have to be more honest and more realistic. We have to question, begin to question some of these statements that people make as a matter of fact and check and see the validity of them. It's really easy to say Mahmoud Abbas speaks in two different languages. And he says one thing in English when he's speaking to West and one thing in Arabic when he's speaking to the Arab world because it sounds good. It seems to make sense to us because that's what we want to believe. But it's simply not true. Yes. My name is Gary Kahn, and uh, I am very pleased that Gershon came to speak with us today. I've been an ardent Zionist since I was a child. My first trip to Israel was in 1960. I served in the Israeli Armed Forces as a volunteer in 1967 and have made several other trips there. We've always said that an, uh, an Israeli's worst enemy is not an Arab. An, uh, an, Israeli, an Arab's worst enemy is another Arab. They cannot make peace with themselves. That's what's holding up the process in making peace with Israel, i.e. Uh, <coughs> Hamas will not make peace with Habat. But I like Goldmeyer's statement, and I think you'll agree, that when the Arabs start loving their children more than they hate the Israelis, we will have peace. And when they stop firing and lay down their arms, then there will be peace. I do believe, though, that if Israel laid down their arms, there would be no more Israel. Well, I, I agree with part of what you said, and I very much don't like what Golda Meir said. I think it's patronizing and ignorant, um, to be quite frank. Um, 
to claim that Palestinian mothers don't love their children is total ignorance of anything of Arab culture, of Arab people, of any people. Who can claim that a mother doesn't love their children? It's a ridiculous statement. Um, it's a statement that only breeds more hatred, not understanding. It's paternalistic and patronizing and incorrect. So I, I don't like it at all. Um, and, um, and I think that... Um, I think that the same thing could be said with the same amount of ignorance, but with the same amount of validity about Israeli children. We send our children to the army. I have a son in the army today. I have another son coming into the army in another month, in, in October, sorry. We teach our children to be the best fighters they can be. Those Israeli children grow up in an atmosphere in which they're encouraged to join combat units, and I can tell you that amongst those young people themselves, they will say quite openly amongst themselves that I want to go into a combat unit because I want to kill as many Arabs as possible. That's not the whole society. It's maybe not even a majority of the society, but it's there. So the Arabs could say the same thing, that we will have peace with the Jews when the Jews love their children more than they love killing us. So we have a conflict situation. The conflict situation has two narratives. Two narratives. These people are at war for decades, generations. We breed conflict by teaching our narrative to our children to grant us legitimacy and a reason to go on fighting. Those re narratives are not reconcilable. They're not. I used to have this re repeated nightmare Years ago, I used to wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat. And when I realized what I was dreaming, um, it was that someone had given me the task of designing the Palestinian History Museum. And as I viewed myself walking through that museum, it was a museum of all the tragedies that were done to the Palestinian people by the Jews. And I would wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat. We can't change the way that Palestinians perceive history any more than we can perceive the way that the Jews perceive their history. And in our history, the enemies of each other are our each other. What we can change is the future. What we have to change is the future. We are all tired of this conflict. Our children are tired of the conflict. And in this world in which we're living today, it doesn't make sense anymore. There are solutions. Every single one of the issues in conflict has solutions to it. We've been negotiating it for a long time. We know how to do it. We perhaps are beginning to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Really, we could be there. It's going to be really hard. Because the most difficult thing, I already said, is the day after. But the reason why the day after is so hard is because we have to begin to write a new narrative. Not easy. Thank you very much. Just one word about my book. Thank you. Um, I understand that the book was ordered and it's coming. It's also available in electronic versions for those of you people who use electronic readers like Kindle, Nook, or iBooks. So it's also available on the internet in an iBook form. And I hope you read it. It's an interesting book.
Hi, uh, 